what immediately comes to mind? Maybe you want to put it on the Facebook feed uh, or YouTube feed if you're with us online. Uh, just put the word in there. I'll see it afterwards. But sh- shout it out to me here. Uh, heaven. What comes to mind? No more death. My home. Jesus, where Jesus is. Joy. Dancing, yes. I'm going to be a good dancer then. <laughs> not, not what I do now. <laughs> yeah, so we've got these images. I mean, I wrote down some things like angels, uh, streets of gold. Uh, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. You know, uh, so, you know, right? You, you, that gives you a little idea of where I grew up. Um, crowns, rewards, glory. Craig and I did this together too, and uh, glory. Um, uh, worship, yes, good, good words. Uh, part of me... Uh, has thought of this question of heaven as a a predominantly Christian um, preoccupation. Uh, But of course, other world religions too have their ideas of what comes next, what comes after uh, after life, after death. Um, Even agnostics uh, have mused on this. I was fascinated to find uh, a television show on Netflix, four seasons long, uh, called The Good Place. Now, this is not an endorsement of it, um, uh, but it's kind of fascinating to see how somebody who's not a Christian, and they overtly say this is not, they're not intending to try to recreate a Christian worldview, uh, but how do they think about the good place as opposed to the bad place? And, and, and my only point here is just that there are people who, who are thinking about it that, that don't share our worldview and our commitment to the scriptures. Um, but it does lead some questions for us where we say, well, Um, What do the scriptures actually say? And as much as we can point to people in the world who have some interesting expectations about the afterlife, there are some Christian or quasi-Christian ideas out there that similarly are, well, fascinating. Um, I I did a a little bit of searching for some ideas, and and here are a few that I came across. Um, Heaven will be whatever gives you peace. Okay, okay. Um, the late actor and comedian Robin Williams, uh, he would describe himself sometimes as an Episcopalian, an Anglican. Um, he explained that he wanted heaven to have all front row seating um, and that Mozart would be performing and then a concert by Elvis. And he assumed that there would be a lot of laughter. He thought it'd be great if God would tell a joke. It'd be, he thought he should lead with a joke about religion just to kind of break the ice. Um, so <laughs> so that's, that's Robin Williams, right? Um, uh, of course, then there are these popular accounts, too, of those who seem to have died, um, had some kind of heavenly experience, and then been revived and, and tell us about that. What do we do with, with some of these things that, well, I don't know, what's up with that? Um, C.S. Lewis, even, I, I found one purported quote. I'm not sure that this is authentic, but um, uh, saying that he um, considered heaven to be incomprehensible and then he went on to describe it as unspatial and non-temporal. Now I went looking for the source of the quote and I couldn't find it, so I'm not sure if somebody's putting words in Lewis's mouth. Unspatial and non-temporal. Non-temporal peace, maybe. Anyway, what, is the, what does the Bible say about it? Pastor Tim and I were talking about this, and he was telling me about the Rainbow Bridge. <clears throat> I'm not saying he believes this, but, but the, the, the Rainbow Bridge is this 
this supposed bridge that connects heaven to where our dogs go when they, when they die, the rainbow bridge. I, I'm not saying Tim believes that, but you can talk to him about it afterwards. Just make... <laughs> but but what, 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 does this, what do the scriptures actually have to say about, about heaven? Um, uh, Billy Graham once said that the moment we take our last breath on earth, we take our first in heaven. Well, where do we find that? What passages of scripture would we look to to, to, to uh, verify that? Uh, and here's kind of the big idea for this morning. Uh, I would just want you to know, uh, whether you're here in person or whether you're online, that you are invited to spend eternity with God. And it is going to be awesome. You don't want to miss this. You don't want to miss this. And so let's set, set aside or try to identify so any of the non-biblical kind of ideas that maybe have snuck into our thinking so that we're not confused, no cloudy thinking. Um, and, and, and let's just get back. So, so I'm going to start, here's what I'm going to start. I'm going to start with just the word heaven. The word heaven. Um, we're going to go through a ton of scripture here this morning. Um, there are three ways in the pages of scripture that the word heaven gets used. And it's, it would, it's very important that we understand which one the author really was meaning to use here. Uh, the word heaven gets used to refer to the cosmos. Uh, it gets used to refer to up, um, like the sky. And it gets used to refer to God's presence, where God is himself. Uh, so, so the cosmos, for example, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 22, your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Okay, so refer, using the word to refer to the cosmos. First Kings 8, 27, similar, uh, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house I have built. That's Solomon uh, speaking. Okay, so, so heaven, referring to the cosmos. Sometimes in the pages of scripture, the word heaven gets used kind of to refer to higher up places. Uh, we would think of it as the sky or the atmosphere around the globe. For instance, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to the heavens. High walls, high places. Okay, so we're paying attention to how this word gets used so that we don't misuse it or misunderstand it. But then there are passages of scripture which refer to heaven as the dwelling place of God. For example, Psalm 33, verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven, he sees all the children of man. From where he sits, enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. So just a couple of thoughts about that passage of scripture. You, you maybe caught your ear, looks down from heaven. That, that refers to him observing from his position of authority. It's not referring to vertical alignment. If you, if you received a promotion at work, we would say you're climbing the corporate ladder. You are in a higher position of authority. Now you maybe got moved up to a floor above where you were, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a position of authority and that's what the scriptures here are talking about. So, so when it uses heaven as the dwelling place of God, I think sometimes we just superimpose this three-layered version of the universe, which science does not support, and we say, well, there we go. The idea is dead in the water. Not at all. Not at all. The, the, the writers understood. They were talking about him speaking from a position of authority. 
So we're, we're wanting to be clear about which word of heaven is being referred, how it's being utilized, so that we ignore, so, so that we don't get caught up in ignorant sort of uh, uh, assumptions about, well, it's the kind of stuff that atheists will lo- like to mock Christians as just being simple-minded. The, the Russians put a man into space in uh, 1961. The Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin famously said, we've gone into space and did not see God there. Well, no surprise. The Bible didn't expect you to see him there. It does not paint a picture of God sitting on a throne in outer space. Okay, so that's just not what's, what's going on here. Use the word rightly. So heaven, the dwelling place of God. Next question, is this where I go when I die? Is that what we, what, what's going on here? Uh, so let's just allow scripture to answer this question for us. Um, Luke chapter 23, verse 40. Uh, Jesus was hanging on the cross. His life was ebbing away from him. And Dr. Luke recounts for us how the thief on one side of him was mocking him. Let's go Pick up the story there, verse 40. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. I tell you, I am so grateful that that, that the Lord has preserved this encounter for us because here we've got a sinful man by his own confession. So he's been convicted of crime, but he, by his own confession, is guilty of crime. He's hours, maybe minutes away from his death. And here, because he confessed Jesus, Jesus promised that this man would be with him in paradise. Now that raises an interesting question. Is paradise a synonym for heaven? Are we talking about the same thing here? And the answer is yes, pretty much at least. Um, To the extent that when we use the word heaven to describe the dwelling place of God where we find him residing, then yes, it's appropriate to use paradise and heaven interchangeably. They're referring to the same place or the same state of existence. Now Jesus said, John chapter 14, verse two, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that where I am there you may be also. John 14, verse two. So where's Jesus now? He's in the father's house preparing a place for us. Where did the thief go when he died? He went to be with Jesus in paradise, one in the same place. That's where, that's where the, the, the dead in Christ now reside. The book of Revelation uses this same word. The apostle John quoting the resurrected Jesus, Revelation chapter two, verse seven. Here's what Jesus said. If you can hear or listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, I will allow those who emerge victorious to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. Now here's another interesting thing about the word paradise. It's the same word that is used to describe the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So if we're trying to picture uh, what this existence is like, well, maybe that's a helpful physical earthly parallel that maybe tips us at least in the right direction, a recreation of what God intended from the beginning. 
So, so just to, to summarize, the promise is that those who have been followers of Jesus, those who have trusted in Christ to be the rescuer, the one who has, who has restored us in relationship to the Father God, uh, those who have died in Christ are with Christ. N.T. Wright, in a, uh, a book that he wrote on this subject called Surprised by Hope, uh, he writes this, the dead are held firmly within the conscious love of God and the conscious presence of Jesus Christ while they await that day. He goes on to describe it as a state of restful happiness. But what does he mean when he says, while they await that day? Okay, this is going to connect us into where we've been over the past three Sundays. Uh, There's this description of the resurrected body that we are anticipating, uh, and yet there seems to be two expressions or experiences of this afterlife reality. We could refer to it as there's a life after life after death. And what we're talking about is the resurrection of our bodies, which is a separate encounter, a separate event. Um, When I die, I will be with Jesus, but I will not yet have my resurrection body. So when do I get that? When do we get this, which we've been talking about over these past few weeks? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, and just remember what Paul wrote there. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Now, the people in the church of Corinth, among other things, were concerned about this question of the resurrection. They had misunderstood uh, some things that were going on, had, had, had assumed, well, Jesus gets a resurrected body, but, but you know, the, we will receive, we will just live as disembodied entities um, in the afterlife. And Jesus said, no, or Paul rather said, no, that's not the way it's going to work. We have a resurrection hope too. This is our eternal expectation. But they had this other concern going on, and that was, well, what about then those who have died before Christ returns? Is this a problem? Uh, Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians. He writes about this in 2 Corinthians. And Paul says, look, you don't need to worry about this either. Uh, Those who are alive, when the trumpet sounds on that final day, when Jesus calls all that is is into its final uh, position, those who are dead in Christ will rise and receive their resurrected body and we who are still alive will join them and we too will have been given our resurrected body. All right, you with me? Okay, so just kind of a quick recap. At death, we will be with Jesus in heaven, paradise. And when he returns, uh, we will be resurrected too. We will be given a new body. Well, what's next? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul's been writing about the tent that we were in and the new body that we get. Listen to what he says in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 
So this is our first kind of look at what we would refer to as the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, the reality in the pages of scripture is that all of humanity will be judged. Uh, this judgment, the Bema seat or the judgment seat uh, of, of Christ uh, seems to be referring specifically to uh, an assessment of the lives of Christians um, who, and there's two emphasis that, that we would expect here. One is a demonstration of our faith. So, so the evidence that indeed that encounter with Jesus was something that changed us from the inside out and there is evidence that we are in Christ. How much evidence did the thief on the cross uh, communicate? Very little, right? I mean, heart change, attitude change, very little time, uh, moments perhaps, to do anything else. This is not about a works-based salvation. It's grace. It's God's kindness to the thief uh, to, and, and to those of us who, who then have lots of years that once we've encountered Jesus and he's been, begun changing us, lots of years to live out the evidence of that. Yay, that's wonderful. Well, that kind of leads then to the second piece uh, of the emphasis here and that is an assessment of the measure of reward that will be ours. The scriptures speak about an eternal reward as part of the heavenly experience. Let, let me just kind of quickly run through referencing some passages. So Jesus himself, Matthew chapter five, verse 12, he said, great is your reward in heaven, uh, referring to those who had been persecuted. The writer of the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 26, describes this as great riches. So, so I think we're using some metaphorical language here to try to understand something that is very real, I don't mean to say it's not real, but it's very real, but it is so superlatively real, it's beyond our ability to put words to it to adequately communicate how spectacular and wonderful it actually is. Okay, so great riches, the writer of Hebrews, the apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse four, he describes this reward as an unfading crown of glory. Paul, he used language like, our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation, referring to that reward. First Thessalonians 2, 19. Second Timothy 4, 8, Paul describes it as a crown of righteousness. Well, they're painting a picture of, of glorious, glorious wonder that is beyond our ability to fully grasp or, or even to look at the, the splendor that is around us and say, well, it's, it's like that, but way better. It, it's like this, so a couple of weeks from now, we're going to talk about the new heaven and the new earth, Revelation 20 and 21, pearly gates, streets of gold. Seems that probably the same kind of thing's going on there. How do you describe a place that is so stunningly spectacular? Well, you're going to have to do, the, the best we're going to be able to do is to allude to it. New heaven, new earth, a couple of weeks from now. So, but first, before we go there, before we wrap it up here this morning, um, there's such an important question and, and that's on everyone's mind, I know, and that is, what about the food? When do we get to eat? Because there's this, there is this reality that, that food and banqueting and feasting is language that gets attached to this eternal expectation throughout the pages of Scripture. So, so uh, Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, uh, the, the context of this is a great victory uh, that has been, been fought, uh, the promise that God is uh, the swallowing up of death, the wiping away of every tear, and here's what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah writes. 
on this mountain, so he's prophesying in the, word, in the voice of God, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Feasting. Jesus, he told several parables about a feast in the end times. Here's just a couple of sound bites. Matthew 22, verse 2. Thank you for groaning. Um, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Now you may recall the story goes on uh, that the king then sent his servants out to find those who would be willing to come. And the point of the story is a harsh critique of the Jewish leaders of Judaism in ancient Israel. Um, Luke tell, recounts a similar but different event uh, when Christ told a very similar kind of story, a uh, parable. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. Uh, Jesus' teaching here. Uh, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. At that point, somebody sitting at the table with him said, uh, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. I'm not sure if he meant it that way, but I think we're supposed to read it that way. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready. Maybe you remember how it ended, it goes on. Uh, Got me a wife, bought me a cow. it just, it, they refused to come. The guests refused to come. Again, it was a, an indictment on the Jewish leaders who were supposed to be stewards of this eternal expectation and, and they were failing at this. Feast expectation. This figures so significantly into the pages of Scripture that, that when Jesus began his ministry, the first, the first thing he did was to turn water into wine at a wedding banquet. It is enormously significant for us in understanding scripture. Let me just jump into the story here. John 2, verse 9. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have served the, saved the best till now. Thank you, Lord. The best of what he has for us is now. The kingdom of God was coming among the people in the hour of Jesus. The kingdom of God is still among us as he lives in us and through us and extends his reign into the world in which we live. And the kingdom of God will be completely among us or we will be completely in it on that day when God brings all things to their conclusion. This is our eternal hope and expectation. And this leads us to the table. We we typically come to the Lord's table being reminded of his death, burial, and resurrection. That's completely appropriate. But as we are reminded of his death, burial, and resurrection, it infers his entire life. It infers God's eternal intention to to provide a way. 
It infers the coming of Jesus at Christmas, the incarnation. It infers uh, his, his teaching, his healing, the miracles that he worked, raising some from the dead. All of this is wrapped up in, in, in what we're talking about as we come to the Lord's table together. And it's referring to the reality that Christ will usher in a glorious eternity for all who are looking to him. And this language of feast continues to to, to grow our expectation. It's not difficult to find scholars who will, you know, have trouble seeing this as a literal feast. I I think they just dislike ham and turkey myself. I just want to tell them there's going to be roast beef too. You know, and Yorkshire puddings. I, I don't really know, I, honestly, I don't really know what this is, is, is going to look like. All I know is that the best that the authors of Scripture were able to approximate was to say, this is going to be the best banquet you've ever been to. And you do not want to miss it. I want you to be there. C.S. Lewis, in a book that he wrote called The Problem of Pain, he writes this. There have been times when I think I do not desire heaven. But more often, I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. All things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been hints of it. Tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, Echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. Friends, will you believe in Jesus? Would you you entrust your life to him? He is calling you toward all that you have ever most wanted in your existence. All that you have ever been looking for or longing for is going to be is found in Jesus, here and now, and there and then. Trust him to carry you from today and through these days of trouble into eternity, through judgment, into a glorious eternity with God. I just invite you to to stand with me if you're here in the room. Maybe you want to do it at home, but I'm going to invite you to bow with me in prayer And let me just say that if this is your desire, that you would desire to follow Jesus, and maybe it's a beginning of following Jesus today, just pray silently with me something like this. Lord Jesus, thank you. What an amazing hope is ours here and now and throughout eternity. Lord Jesus, I want to walk with you So please forgive my sin, my waywardness, my self-centeredness, all that I know to be wrong in the story of my life. Because today, I want to be with you in paradise. Come fill my life with yourself and lead me now and through forever. I ask this in your name. Lord Jesus, amen.